Hey guys, and welcome to the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report, presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. The first podcast to bring you the local fishing report for Alabama's lakes and rivers, whether it's good, bad, or ugly. I'm your host, Nick Williams, and this week's show is brought to you by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. Are you frustrated by your typical hunting and fishing magazines? Are you tired of reading content meant for guys up north or in the Midwest? Don't get left behind following the guidance of guys who don't hunt and fish in your home state. Pick up a Great Days Outdoors magazine subscription and become a better southern outdoorsman. Great Days Outdoors magazine can be found at your local Books A Million, Tractor Supply Company, Rural King, or you can save and buy online at greatdaysoutdoors.com. Alrighty, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report. Uh, we're starting to get into that weird transitionary time of year. We got some cold days, we got some warm days. Uh, before you know it, we'll have spawn for bass, crappie. It's getting to be that time of the year. We're getting out of the winter doldrums. We got a lot of good topics coming up today. First up, though, we're going to be talking with Mike Del Visco, talking about some of the uh, fishing seminars that are coming to our area. Mike? How you doing today, sir? Nick, I'm doing great. How are you? Man, I'm just sitting here with a cup of coffee. Just uh, glad to be finally sitting down. I've had the past two mornings I've been taking people out to duck hunting. I'm kind of an impromptu guide here, and uh, good to be off my feet for a little bit. So how how are you doing? <laughs> I bet that cold weather is pretty good for duck hunting right now. Well, we did okay. It was a... Uh... It was kind of a slow end of the season, you know, just just how it is. You get late birds. They've been shot to pieces all year, but uh, we've we done all right both days. We got on some birds. So. A little too cold for me to go fishing, so I'm just talking about fishing now for the next few weeks. Well, you know how it is. Talking about fishing is maybe even better than actually going fishing. So uh, <laughs> Tell our listeners a little bit. Uh, for those, I know, I know your name comes up in the bass fishing world i know you've been doing this for a long time i think uh i think i was just looking at your website and your bio said you'd been uh been involved in the bass tournaments for 40 years is that right yeah i i actually fished my first um bass master invitational when i was a senior in high school and that was like 1982 or three something like that so uh, yeah 40 42 years it'd been a long time and, and i've done seminars quite a long time too as well I, I think i got kind of thrown into it and, and ended up liking it pretty much and uh speak at quite a few shows around the country but it, you know it's nice going to be at uh east tennessee fishing show here uh because it is kind of my backyard I, I live literally 30 minutes away from the expo so it's nice to you know i've been traveling all year so far and it's nice to not to have to travel for one of these shows ain't, ain't that the truth well, well tell me a little bit about kind of the history of your involvement with the east tennessee fishing show how how long you been doing that for? Yeah, so I've been, uh, you know, they've had, uh, I think this is the 13th or 14th year. I'm not 100% sure, but it, it's right around there someplace. And, and the show used to be at a different building down there and closer to downtown Knoxville. And that was the first time that I had ever gone to uh, to that show. Uh, I was uh, been sponsored by Phoenix Boats ever since day one. I guess it was probably 2008, 2009 when they, they premiered their boat and, and they did it. Uh, at that Tennessee show and I got to know Sheila who uh, Sheila Bunch who owns the show and runs the show and I think that was one of her first couple of years that that she ran it and uh, we just got to be uh, friends and you know I I wasn't actually living out here at the time I was living in South Carolina and um, she had come down to an event that I was doing at Douglas Lake here in East Tennessee and, and we got talking and that was the first year I think she had me did semin- do seminars at the show. And that role has grown to, wow. you know, doing seminars and um, 
actually working with a lot of the other guys that come in and do seminars too, because, uh, you know, just cause I've been in the business so long and I know everybody and, uh, it, it's progressed and progressed. And, and now I do a bunch of the media stuff and, you know, do a lot of the TV segments and hits and, and podcasts like yourself and, you know, just a, a lot of different things with the show to, you know, make it a little bit easier on her. And it's been, I guess, been about 10 years now. And I also host the, uh, one of the unique things that Sheila does is um, she, she really, you know, the, one of the biggest things I get from, from vendors walking around the show is, you know, she really treats her vendors well. And uh, a, a true aspect of that is um, she has a podcast called the outdoor showcase that actually features uh, vendors and dealers and special guests and seminar guys that come to the East Tennessee show or the Alabama show. And I host that along with her and we do a show every single week and it's nothing but promote it, trying to promote, you know, her vendors, her dealers, give them a little bit extra uh, mileage out of, you know, them coming to the show. It's a great thing. For sure. Yeah. I, I enjoyed it. We, uh, I, I got to talk with Sheila earlier this month and, and it, Really, I had never heard of the the show, um, East Tennessee. I'm all the way down here on the Gulf Coast, so it's it's a ways for me to get to Knoxville. But uh, I was really excited to hear that she was bringing that to uh, Gadsden as well. I actually just got done going to a fly fishing convention um, up there, Pretty Town, uh, the Black Creek, you know, trout fishery that they have up there is unique. Try it on the Coosa River, and then the uh, the venue is a is a pretty cool place. So, uh, are you going to be this year? Are you going to be at the East Tennessee show and the Alabama show, or are you just going to be at the uh, the Tennessee show coming up this weekend? No, I am at both shows. Uh, we do a lot of I do a lot of media at the uh, Alabama show too. And last year was our first year for that show, and uh, it went really really well. It, it was a it was an awesome show. You know, nobody really knew how well it was going to do. And, you know, I know that area pretty well from, you know, from fishing there, the Coosa River and, and you know, Neely Henry and some of the other lakes around. And I, I just didn't know there was an expo center there. And that's yeah, fairly recent. And, and it's a beautiful facility. And uh, right there at the shores, right there at Coosa Landing, which makes it even better. And uh, we, we had a great, great show. Uh, last year and looking forward to even a better show this year well tell me a little bit more about your involvement with the with the different fishing seminars that they do there yeah so um my specialty for doing these seminars is um is sonar stuff and that's you know i i've done bass fishing seminars all over the country for years and you know really uh you know in the last 10 years i've, I've really ramped up the sonar stuff and it's kind of my little niche in the industry and something that I like to teach and something that was really popular because it's, you know, it's not a, not an easy thing to teach. It's, it's, there's so much technology involved and you have to kind of do it from an aspect of either somebody knows nothing about sonar or, or people have a, a pretty good familiarity with it and, and they want to learn more or, you know, they're a little bit more advanced. So I try to cater a, a little bit to every one of those um, individuals that might come to see one of my seminars and, you know, and it's an all video based uh, seminar, which is pretty cool, too, because you just you need some visuals when you're trying to teach this stuff. And uh, and that's what I'll be. Uh, that's what I'll be doing, actually, all four days of the East Tennessee Fishing Show. But, you know, the the nice thing about going to that show is it's not just bass fishing. 
there is so much to do here in East Tennessee from, you know, catfishing to crappie fishing, bass fishing. There's even walleye and sauger and, and an occasional muskie if you happen to get on one. But um, there's lots of stuff to catch. We've got seminars that, that cover every single species that you might want to catch here in East Tennessee. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of uh, a lot of opportunities. I took my daughter to the aquarium there in Chattanooga, and I always enjoy going, and I always enjoy going through the exhibit and, and reading. Uh, even though I've read it before, I just enjoy being reminded, you know, that Tennessee River Valley is, is one of the most biodiverse regions in, in the whole country, uh, really in the whole world when it comes to fish species and turtles. So there's you can kind of do everything, right? Like it's kind of the same way up there on the Coosa. You can go catch big blue catfish. You can catch crappie. You can catch bass. You know, you can go uh, right around the corner. You can fly fish. Like there's just just a little bit of everything, you know. And and anglers yeah. down here in Alabama, uh, you know, we we can start in the mountains and fish the headwaters, and people can come all the way south and then, you know, fish for redfish, inshore saltwater species, uh, you know, tarpon, red snapper uh everything tuna fishing like you just you got everything right here kind of in the southeast which is really really wonderful yeah and that's the one thing that we're lacking here is any kind of saltwater fishing <laughs> that would be awesome you know to, to be in an area where you could do just so much of that diverse fishing that's a great thing but it's uh it, it's funny that you know i never knew that there was trout fishing in in gadsden until i you know got to meet those people down there and actually see the you know where they trout fish up there in the falls yeah. And uh, that, that uh, I never knew that existed and all the times I've been there. It's it's definitely Nakalula and Black Creek is a hidden gem. I've uh, if you live in Alabama, that's just one of the little locust local tourist destinations uh, that you kind of hit growing up, going on your family vacations and everything. You go to see Nakalulu Falls, see the little statue of, of the Indian princess jumping off of it. But I had never until this weekend got down into the canyon and hiked that trail. And I think it's about a mile and a half trail, and you, I kind of fished the whole way up and back, and it was it was pretty slow when I went. It was 17 degrees that morning, uh, so I had had my my guides were icing up, my fly line was icing up, and I didn't catch a lot of fish, but man, it was pretty. And especially by the time you got to the falls, you kind of had frost on everything from the spray. Everything down there was iced up, and uh it was it was really unique and like you said it's just a thing if you're just driving through you'll completely miss it and uh i did i didn't catch anything but i got to see some of the locals who were there fishing who had it figured out a little bit better than me they pulled in some uh some pretty nice trout too i mean they were they were bigger than i thought stalkers would be so it's definitely a unique opportunity yeah they always get some holdovers i think there too from what they tell me so really yep yeah, yeah, there were there were some nice trout, and you couldn't ask for better scenery. And uh, Gadsden's kind of a cool little town. It's located in a good place, and uh, and Knoxville is too. I know that's up there. You're close to the Smokies, and and a lot of good stuff up there as well. So, tell me, uh, tell me a little bit more. You say you do sonar. Um, what other type of seminars do y'all usually have up there? So we have got, uh, and I, and I hopefully I don't forget anybody coming here to East Tennessee, but there is, um several elite series pros uh starting off with um a guy that i've known for close to 40 years and who's a legend in the sport we've tried to get him to the east tennessee a few times and the schedules have just not worked out but everything worked out this year and we got bernie schultz coming uh, to the east tennessee fishing show and um that is going to be 
a really good treat for a lot of people coming to see him. Uh, he's, he's one of the guys that I learned an awful lot from, you know, when I was coming up, you know, at, at a young age and learning the promotion into this business. So um, we've been, we've been friends for an awful long time and it's going to be great to see him uh, along with Bernie, uh, almost his next door neighbor there in the same town, Shaw Grigsby, who's another uh, guy that's been at the East Tennessee Fishing Show a bunch of times and always a fan favorite. Great, always seeing Shaw, and he's a, another good friend of mine. Got a new uh, new Elite Series pro, uh, Matty Wong, who's really really popular. Young young kid from from Hawaii who's uh, we're doing really really well his first couple of years on on the Elite Series. We've also got Skylar Hamilton going to be there. Um, another guy named Nick Kusis from Ontario, Canada, going to be talking about smallmouth coming all the way down from there. And um, then we've got some multi-species stuff. We've got Captain Jim Durham going to be talking about striper and um, walleye fishing. And we've got um, Greg Matacasis, um going to be talking about kayak fishing, which is another crazy popular subject, uh, especially at the East Tennessee Fishing Show. And um, Skylar Hamilton is going to be doing crappie fishing this year, something a little bit different. Um, Skylar was a Elite Series pro for years and years, and he has uh, just started a uh, guide business here in, the, in East Tennessee. He got his captain's license, and he is specializing a lot a bath but also going to be doing a lot of crappie stuff so we've got got him coming in doing uh doing crappie fishing that definitely sounds like a full house tell me a little bit as a um as a teacher giving these seminars what if if somebody's going to come up and make either the east tennessee fishing show or the alabama fishing show and they plan on sitting in on a seminar what's your uh what's your notes on how to be a good student what would you advise people to do to make sure that they get the most out of these seminars yeah, I would say bring bring a notebook and write a lot of stuff down. The the kind of the unique thing with our show is that we do not have a bass tank at, at our show. Uh, and I know a lot of people like to go and, and that's, you know, kind of one of the ways that you can take a seminar in at a lot of these shows around the country, you know, because you can kind of see how the bass react in, in their environment and watch lures and stuff like that. But uh, we do all classroom stuff. We have a a really big classroom with a big screen TV and, and all the AV equipment that a lot of the guys will do uh, PowerPoint presentations and some will just bring, you know, bring their gear up and you can get, you know, right up close with, with Sean, Bernie and everybody and, and be able to, you know, learn a bunch of this stuff that they're going to be teaching. And the room is kind of set up in an oval so that no matter where you're sitting, you can, you can see things really good too. And uh, I, I can't tell you how many people show up almost specifically sometimes just to go take the seminars in. You know, you see them year in, year out. I'll, I'll see a lot of the same people, you know, being here and, and doing seminars over, you know, a 10 year period. You get to know people and, you know, you see them there always sitting in at your classes and, and they're always taking notes. And uh, really the sonar stuff is, you know, for me is, is what I see a lot of. And uh, and that's something where you really need to kind of, you know, jot a few things down. Yeah, I, I can imagine, too, it would be helpful. Like I know, you know, of, of course, it's what I do for a living is is put together media, write articles, try to help, you know, walk people through, you know, purchase decisions, try to help people, you know, learn tactics. They're going to help them out in the woods or on the water. 
Um, but but as a writer, I know there's only so much that you can do. And you, you put so much work in trying to think ahead and answer all of the questions. But then I'll write something and post it. And then somebody will have a follow-up question and go into the seminar that I went to last weekend at the fly fishing uh, convention. It was It was cool because you could sit there and you know, raise your hand, ask a clarifying question, you know, kind of, kind of, if you were hung up on something, you could, uh, you know, get that kind of real time feedback and learning that you just don't get, even though nowadays it's, it's amazing how much information there is online, right? Like you can't really beat being in person with somebody and you can be like, Hey, hang on a second. What exactly, you just said this, what exactly do you mean by that? Yeah, I totally understand that. I, I think, you know, when being up close and personal as, as opposed to you know, watching somebody, you know, 20 foot up in the, up in the air on a bass tank, you know, you really can't see sometimes if they're tying knots or how they, uh, different baits that they've got, you, you know, you've always got to kind of get with them when they're done. So you can kind of see their tackle and see what they've done. But, you know, here in this atmosphere, I mean, you're right there, center stage, right there in front of all the action. Yeah. It sounds like an awesome opportunity. And, uh, I, I know the, the vendors are always cool. It's always cool to go see the new gear, but but the the new information I think is what really sets people up for success. You know, learn a learn a new thing, learn how to use all that new new snazzy gear. Remind us all one more time. I know the uh, the the East Tennessee Fishing Show is coming up this weekend. I think the twenty fifth through the twenty eighth. If I got that right, that that is correct. Starts uh, Thursday. Doors open at two p.m. in the afternoon. And the I want to say the Alabama show is coming in March. Is that right? Yes. And I think that is the 8th, 9th, and 10th of March, if I'm not mistaken. Friday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that's a three-day show. And uh, and one thing about the Alabama show that's different um, this coming year, but now that I remember that, is we are going to have a kids fishing derby on Saturday of the show. So that's going to be on uh, Saturday the 9th going to be a two-hour fishing derby for the kids and and the nice thing about having you know the Coosa Landing and the Riverwalk right there is that's where they're going to fish from we're gonna we I think we've already got about 20 kids already pre-registered and uh, they're going to come down they're going to fish for a couple hours right there from the from the Riverwalk and uh going to be prizes for for them a couple different age groups and a uh, bunch of different categories and just going to have a really good time yeah sounds like a really good time uh well i'd encourage everybody listening in go ahead and check it out if you're local to the uh, the gadsden show or if you're local to the east tennessee show or check them both out if you're up there north part of the state where you can hit both uh i'd advise you to go mike really good talking to you appreciate all the information and uh thanks for being on the show awesome thanks for having me Alrighty, guys that was mike del visco talking to us about the east tennessee and the alabama fishing show y'all be sure to check them out next up we're gonna have peter jordan over at the lost angler fly shop but before we get to that y'all take a second and check out some of the sponsors that keep this week's show free to you this week's episode of the alabama freshwater fishing report has been brought to you by southeastern pond management since 1989 southeastern pond management has been a leader in pond and lake management services if you own a pond or lake anywhere in the southeast Southeastern Pond Management can evaluate the health of your pond and then work with you individually to put together the right plan to get what you want out of your body of water. Through electrofishing, liming, fertilizing, and stocking and weed control, Southeastern Pond Management is the one-stop shop to help you produce more healthy trophy fish than ever before. Schedule an obligation-free consultation today. Call one 888 830 pond or email info at southeastpond.com.
Alrighty guys, next up we got Peter Jordan down here on the coast at the Lost Angler Fly Shop. Peter, how you doing today, sir? I'm doing great, Nick. Thank you for having me, bud. Absolutely. You uh y'all y'all managed to survive the big freeze? Oh yeah, the big freeze of twenty twenty four. I think we I think we brought some plants in, that was about it. That's it, that's it. Y'all y'all didn't have to go out and uh, y'all y'all didn't run out of milk, eggs and bread, did you? Oh no, 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 no. We uh <laughs> we, we scrambled to get that along with everybody else, right? Yeah, yeah, well, that's that's good. I'm glad to know that the trucks kept running to the Winn Dixie down here this far south. So I had I had my doubts oh, yeah. there for a little bit. <laughs> so they did uh, they did call school in Baldwin County and Mobile County though, so that was funny. Yeah, well, and they I think they called it out one day, and then the next day they pushed it back an hour, and all my buddies were laughing like, "Yeah, that'll that'll make a difference," you know, push it push it back oh, yeah. an hour, and that'll keep them from freezing. Like, oh yeah, the kids were tickled though. So that's I just, I just wish I could have talked my boss into letting us take a snow day, but nobody seemed oh, interested. Right. I, I floated the idea, and nobody bid. I don't know why. So. <laughs> yeah, I know. One of my half my bosses are in uh, are in places like uh, as a rep. You know, I've got one of the companies, I, one of the main companies I deal with is R.O. Winston. So you can't tell boys in Twin Bridges, Montana, <laughs> that it's too cold <laughs> in Alabama. They don't listen. Yeah, well, but the the good news though is that they are scared to death of hurricanes, so you can tell them, oh, man, we got we got a cat, too. And they'll be like, oh, that sounds serious. And then you can go play Very hooky because, yeah, yeah, you can play hooky because down here nobody stops anything for a cat, too. So. <laughs> yeah, let's Waffle House closes, right? That's it. That's it. Well, your name come up uh, here recently. I know last week on the show we had uh, Stephen Rockarts, and he was kind of talking about how this is the time of the year he starts getting his fly box ready. And uh, in a conversation he had mentioned, uh, he, he dropped some praise on you, said that you was about the best stream retire that he knew in the state of Alabama. And uh, I figured... Well, too kind. Yeah, yeah, Stephen's a good guy. So uh, I figured since, you know, we're, we're kind of in the doldrums, it's wintertime, everybody's kind of, you know, in a weird transition phase, resting up from the holidays, trying to weather out this cold weather, and kind of kind of getting ready for the pre-spawn, people getting their stuff ready. I, I figured I'd get with you, and uh, I... I have tied a couple of flies, and no, we're not going to show anybody any pictures of them. We're not going to talk about them too much. They happened. That's all that anybody <laughs> needs to know. Uh, but I want to get into it a little bit more seriously this year. We've had some good duck hunting going on. I've got me some feathers. I'm going to try to tie with some uh, some native natural materials here. I've got me some deer hair. I've got me some squirrel pelts. I've got me some duck feathers. But uh, but But what I don't know is... Just kind of the lowdown, like what what do you need to get started? What's what's the essentials as far as a good beginner vice? And well, let's start this way. What got you to the point where you're tying your own flies and where somebody would say, "Yeah, well, he's he's the best stream retired that I know." How did how did your fly tying journey start? Oh uh, well, my fly tying uh, started for me uh, when I was in college when I picked up uh, fly fishing, and uh, I picked up my first fly rod up like so many other folks in Bass Pro Shops. And uh, I grabbed a handful of flies while I was there, and I was just, I was just not satisfied with the way they swam, with what they did, or any of that kind of stuff. And I was, I was just genuinely disappointed in them. And I think it came from my background was as a bass angler, so one of my favorite uh, soft plastics to throw was a, a Zoom fluke. Uh, it just works stupendously well everywhere, and. My first goal was to tie a fly that would have that side-to-side action and would be weedless. 
and they went I went through a ton of iterations on trying to make it weedless and finally settled on some stuff that works pretty well today, I think. And uh and then that, that journey to try to have that side to side darting dipping action, uh, that was such a big part of it. Um and then the next thing was, you know, just trying to imitate basically the same lures that I would use for conventional tackle. I wanted to have flies that had the same action, same look, all that kind of stuff. And there just wasn't anything on the market for it. Um, this was early 2000s. And fly tying for warm water, uh, bass and whatnot, just wasn't really a thing. It was an afterthought for most folks in the fly fishing world. You know, you had some patterns here and there that were okay. and uh, But overall, it was kind of wasn't great and I wasn't satisfied with it so I started to tie my own flies and like when I started out I had a vice that somebody had given me for Christmas uh when I was in high school and I I, I used like the bobbins of thread that I bought at Walmart I mean because it really wasn't anywhere to get very much you had Bass Pro Shops that had okay selection and then you had McCoy's and Mobile and they had okay selection so I'd go pick up hooks and then just start working on it and uh and what I would, I, just like everybody else, you know, I, I try to Google up some patterns, but that was, I said, the early 2000s. So the library of flies that you can look at on YouTube just wasn't available. And so it came, came down to just trying a lot of different materials, how to do it, how to get an action, what's going to achieve the action I want. And I kind of came to the conclusion um, that I was trying to engineer a fly more than I was trying to tie a fly. And it, it took it took a good long while to get to where, you know, I was super happy with it. But at the end of the day, I think I tied my first uh, deceiver pattern uh, within a day or so of just Googling what I wanted. And uh, I remember taking it down to Dolphin Island, going fishing dock lights and smoking a bunch of trout underneath the dock lights. And I was like, oh, this is it, man. This is it. Cause I don't have anything that's just like this because I'd. I, you know, just like every other bass angler, I'd go down to the water and I'd be fishing. I go, man, if I had a lure that just looked like this, I'd have tore them up today. And inevitably, there's never that special lure. So tying your own flies allows you to always have the perfect lure for the situation. So that's how I got started. That's kind of, you know, I, I like that what you're saying. Like if I had something that looked just like this, so the creek behind my house growing up, weed shiners. I mean, it's full of small weed shiners, and they're not much bigger than a crappie minnow, and they're very distinctive, like olive green up on the back, black stripe, silver underbelly, and back when I was live bait fishing, you could go down there, and if you caught them weed shiners, you could could tear bass up. They wouldn't look at it twice. They'd been eating that the whole life, and if, if they saw them, they would eat them, and if you went down there with shiners that you bought, at the at the bait shop down the road or or night crawlers or whatever yeah they didn't know what it was yeah yeah Yeah, it was super clear water and and you know folks in the neighborhood where i grew up they fished a lot and lord help you if you were sitting there running you know a shad wrap or something in there or or a a fluke like you're talking about like it was twice the size of any of the bait that they'd seen their whole lives growing up like it was bigger than their forage so that's a that's been something that's been on my mind since i started fly fishing is like man if i tied just a teeny tiny little streamer and if i could get those colors right like i could finally have a lure that looked exactly like that so what what do you recommend to people now i know it's way different like you talked about how there wasn't you know much on youtube and on the internet back in the day and now like fly fishing 
blew up warm water fly fishing got a little bit more trendy and now you could lose a week uh scrolling through youtube and looking at fly tying recipes and and it's just Oh, come yeah. a long way but i, I guess you said that you tied a, a deceiver kind of for your first fly so what do you recommend for some first fly patterns and then what's what's the gear that you need to get started i know you can go as deep down that rabbit hole as you want to But what would you consider to be the essentials and what's a good starter fly for people? So I will say this. So one of my big things that I advise people to do is to start out with a really good quality vice. And it's going to, and it doesn't have to be, um, it doesn't have to be a, a vice that's going to break the bank. You know, you want a good rotary vice like a Renzetti Traveler or a Peak Rotary Vice. They're going to run you about 200 bucks. And uh, I know you and I have had this conversation. You've stopped in my shop. I've had the same peak vice for 15 years now, and it's still rolling strong. No issues whatsoever. When I'm on the road, I use a Renzetti because it's lighter. And uh, these, these are both, you know, nice, high-quality vices. And it's, it's one of those things you buy once, you cry once. But if you buy a good vice, it's going to last you a lifetime. Uh, the next thing you want to do is there's some really great tying kits as far as having your scissors, your bobbin, bodkin, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Loon makes some great kits we carry at the shop. Uh, we carry some kits by New Phase. I generally recommend the ones from New Phase because uh, they're less expensive. Um, but just kind of remember there's certain things that are wear items. You know, your your scissors, you know, if, once you get through your kit and you get like a year through those scissors, you know, your kit scissors, they're going to be kind of kind of shot because you're, you're – You're not just tying, you're not just cutting like natural materials like feathers or uh, hair or whatever. You're going to end up tying synthetics, and it's really, really rough on your scissors. So you can upgrade that later on. Uh, but if you start with a good solid kit and you can upgrade the pieces as you need to, I would say you're probably out at, with the, with the vice and the kit that I recommend at our shop, you're out 270 bucks, and that is going to last you for essentially the rest of your life. And you're going to be in great shape. And it's something that's going to, hey, you talked about bringing in uh, hunting and fishing, combining those together. You know, having the, the wood duck feathers and the deer tails and the squirrel and all that. I mean, what I love about fly time, too, is you can have that experience where it brings in your hunting and your fishing all in one go. And it, and it really makes it really special because now you've got your bringing in your hunting into your fishing season. And you're bringing your fishing into your hunting season, and and it, it just becomes a very uh, holistic approach to to enjoying the outdoors. And I think my favorite part about fly time, though, is how you talked about seeing those little those little darters in that little creek. That's the best part about fly time. It it does two things. It forces you to look at the world around you uh, more in depth than you normally would have, and then to afterwards think about. Uh, what you're tying, how you're tying it. And in doing that, it helps you to understand how your fly is made, what the action is. And I think overall it's going to make you a better angler. So you have a better appreciation. Uh, you have a more holistic approach to your entire outdoor enjoyment. You have a better appreciation for all the critters that swim, fly, and crawl around your uh, place you want to fish at. And now that you've designed your own flies, tied your own flies, you understand the way they swim in the water, why they swim in the water the way they do, now you're better at using that equipment, and it makes you just a better angler all the way around. Going from that, if I had some beginner patterns, I would recommend first figuring out where you want to go to and looking at what you want to do. It's easy to tell somebody, yeah, you might want to start with deceivers. In like a warm water world, if I had to pick three flies, I'd tell you to do a clouser, a deceiver, and a, um, 
and something like a, a stealth bomber, you know, and those are all very Googleable flies. Um, I've got tutorials for all those on, on the YouTube channel for Lost Angler, and there's a million other variations of them. The other thing that I would tell every new tire is it's your fly, bro. There is no rules. You tie it the way it makes you happy. And if it doesn't come out perfect, who cares? Those, that's, that's, those fish will eat it, even if it's not perfect. And it's, it's up to your enjoyment how much you enjoy doing it. You can take it as far as you want to. You can have what people call guide flies, which are uh, really effective flies that aren't fancy and, you know, kind of yes. when you look at them. Or you can, um, you know, tie flies that are as uh, beautiful and uh, over the top as you want so that you can have some that you're like, wow, this is awesome. And I have folks come in to feel more confident throwing uh, guide flies. And you have people like me that fly tying is something I truly love. And so unless it's the best possible work I can produce, I don't want to throw it. And, you know, I'd rather lose four or five flies in a tree, but no, it's what made me happy to cast. And that's the big thing. You have, this is just remember that fly tying uh, isn't going to save you money, but it, I tell you what, there is nothing more special than catching a fish on a fly you tied yourself. And when you combine that to, let's say you're talking about, you shot the animal, you clean the animal, uh, you tan the hide, and then you tie flies with it, and then you caught fish with it. I mean, that's that's the, that's a grand slam. You knock that out of the park. It's it's and it's extremely fun. But if I was going to do warm water flies, I would say a Clouser, a, uh, Bob Clouser's Deep Minna, Lefty's Deceiver, and Kit Edmund's Stealth Bomber. And with those three flies, I don't see any reason you couldn't catch every fish in the state of Alabama. And then if I was going to look at it from a saltwater perspective, I would do a um, and you could probably, you could definitely throw a woolly booger in there too. So you could definitely throw a woolly booger in there and that'll work great for brim and everything else. So for saltwater, I would probably do again, a deceiver, a clouser. I would do something really simple, like a squimp and a, um, probably a gurgler. And I would say with those four flies, you catch anything in saltwater in, uh, the Northern Gulf coast. Uh, I'd say it was a whole lot of certainty actually. You don't have to stress too much about it. You just want to get into it and get started. And that's the biggest thing is just get started into it. And then you can go through all the different subtle nuances of if I want my fly to slide back and forth in the water, if I want it to uh, hop and bounce in the whole nine yards, then you can, you can definitely go into that and figure out the different features of it. But the important thing is just getting started. And I recommend that folks, when they're buying their materials, they sit down with an idea of the flies that they want to tie and the colors that they want to try to go for and they try to have materials that'll work across the board for a lot of it. So like if I think of a woolly booger, right? And then I think of a deceiver, and then I think of a clouser, and then I think of a uh, you know stealth, a stealth bomber. Well, all except for a couple of things, it's all the same materials. It's all hackle, it's all deer hair. You got some you know, weighted eyes and, and the hooks may change a little bit and some chenille and a little bit of flash. Right now, that's it. That's all you need to tie all of those flies and make them extremely effective. And then you can go spread out from different colors from there. I like it. Well, Peter, that definitely that's a, a, a really good place, I think, for people to start. Um, if we got folks down here local who are looking to pick up one of those vices that you mentioned or get a fly tying kit, pick up some materials, where's a good place to get a hold of you? Uh, you can uh, you can stop by uh, Lost Angler Fly Shop in Daphne, Alabama. We're open Wednesday through Saturday from 10 to 6. And then throughout the state, uh, definitely recommend stopping and seeing Rob at Deep South in Birmingham. 
uh, see Mr. Frank in Rainbow City in Gadsden, Alabama. And then definitely stop over and see uh, Brandon at Riverside. We're very, very fortunate for such a small state like Alabama to have so many wonderful fly shops that have so many wonderfully informed people that have them. And each, you know, all of our shops kind of have a little bit of a specialty. And I think everybody at each store are avid tires as far as all of us. And we're always super happy at all of these stores to point you in the right direction. So if you're saying, hey, I want to fish the Cahaba, 100%, go and stop at Deep South. Those folks over there are going to be able to tell you everything you want to know. Or you're saying, hey, I want to hit the Sipsy and those ranges. Go see go see Brandon, you know, or you're going to want to be, you know, up towards the Tennessee River, you know, around up, you know, up north Gadsden and all that stuff. Go see Mr. Frank. And if you're going to be down here, you know, in lower Alabama, I'm super happy to help you. And having that knowledge of having those local fly shops that can, you know, point you out, hey, if you're in this river or this section of the river, this is what's going to work the best. And that works really, really well. And we've got the two-edged sword. There's so many amazing YouTube videos that it makes learning a big variety of patterns really easy. But like you said, it's easy to get overwhelmed by it. Um, So if you're coming from conventional fishing, pick out your top three favorite lures and then try to think of why, you know, what makes them work. So like for me, if I think of, I named the Zoom Fluke because I wanted that weedlessness. Uh, And then you might think of like um, a jig, essentially that's a, that's a clouser minnow. And then you go on from there. You see what I'm saying? So start start with what you would essentially use for your conventional tackle and then adapt that into your fly patterns. And whatever works for your conventional tackle is going to work for your fly tackle. Just remember fly fishing is nothing more than a different way to cast an artificial lure to a fish. I think that's definitely a good way of looking at it, and I appreciate all the information, guys. Definitely be sure to check out Peter. Uh, check out, of course, Brandon Jackson. Check out Mr. Frank up there in Gadsden. Check out the folks up at uh, all the different fly shops scattered all over the state. Do like Peter said. Check them out. Get help with your local waterways. And, uh, Peter, as always, I appreciate having you on the show, sir. Oh, thank you, sir. The only thing I would like to point out is February 17th at Brady River Brewing in Mobile, Alabama. We're going to have the 2024 Iron Fly Competition. So if you can imagine Iron Chef for fly time, that's it. And it's a great way to come out and meet the fly fishing community in Lower Alabama. We would love to have folks from all over the southeast come out, tie for the fun of it. We're going to have stupid prizes, fun prizes, great beer, good people, and good times. Definitely sounds like a good event. Tell me one more time, what's the date for that, Peter? It's going to be February 17th, uh, the exact time to be announced later on. So just follow it on social media and it'll be at Braided River Brewing in Mobile, Alabama. There we go, guys. Y'all come by, check it out. Peter, you have a good rest of your day, sir. Appreciate you. You do the same. Thank you so much, bro. Alrighty, guys, that was Peter Jordan talking to us about how to tie your own flies, a subject I've gotten more interested in the past year. Uh, next up, rounding out this week's show, we're going to have Will Strickland uh, over with Mobile Baykeeper. But before that, let's take a second and hear from some of this week's sponsors. This week's episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report has been brought to you by L&M Marine. L&M Marine has something for everyone, from small hunting boats to pontoon boats, to bigger bay boat and offshore hybrids. L&M Marine LLC prides itself on its customer service and knows how important it is to be taken care of and to have someone you can trust. They are locally owned and regularly support the surrounding community. 
L&M Marine provides superior customer service and has an entire team that consists of professional sales members, finance experts, service technicians, and a knowledgeable parts and accessories staff to fully support you. Go visit their friendly, reliable, and experienced staff today. L&M Marine is located six miles north of I-10 at 34600 Highway 59 in Stapleton, Alabama. You can also reach them by phone at 251-937-1380. Also brought to you by Killer Doc. Most fishermen clean their fish on something like an unsightly old wooden table or the top of a cooler, somewhere that's not comfortable, not sanitary, and not attractive. Killer Dock makes the greatest fish cleaning stations known to mankind. They are built from marine-grade aluminum and ceramic coated to protect them from the harsh salt environment. Killer Dock makes tables and canopies at several different sizes, so whatever you need on your dock, deck, or patio, they have a fish cleaning station for you. Check out KillerDock.com to see more. Alrighty, guys, we're back. This time we're talking with the executive director of Mobile Baykeepers, Will Strickland. Will, how you doing today, sir? Doing all right. I'm a little sleepy after our morning adventures, but uh, but it's been a great day. <laughs> it was definitely a great day outdoors this morning. We had had a good old time. Uh, with folks listening in, me and me and Will, we're kind of a uh, hunting buddies. We snuck away. We played a little bit of hooky this Tuesday morning, and. Uh, shot some ducks this morning it was a it was a good time uh y'all may remember we had uh last summer we had several of the uh waterkeeper organizations here on the show uh will heads up my you know local waterkeeper organization mobile bay keepers they're here to help us uh kind of take care of the waterways that, that we fish and that some of our uh, contributors like dip dip mcmillan fish uh will will sits here and he kind of leads the charge keeping everything clean holding people accountable when he needs to helping to educate people does a whole lot for the community um last time we talked i think i talked with uh not you it was cade kistler and he actually uh he he did the recording he was actually out on y'all's patrol boat so he was he was actually working for a living uh not not playing hooky shooting ducks he was hard at work but uh tell tell me what y'all been doing since then yeah, that's a great intro to what we do. And I, I just want to frame it a little bit more before I talk about what we've been doing. You know, we Baykeeper, we try to define success in the long term as that no one should have to question if the fish are safe to eat or the water safe to swim in and when our oysters and seagrasses recover and our community takes responsibility for these things. And so as we look at the issues that we face, uh, we will try to view it through that lens. How does it affect uh, whether the fish are safe to eat, water safe to swim, oyster seagrass, and then everybody's saying, hey, these are things that are important. And so since you talked to Cade, we had a, we had a big victory um, over on Rabbit Creek down here on the Dog River watershed, which for those of you that don't know, is a kind of a tidal river. Um, and Rabbit Creek is a tidal creek. It's crystal clear and it's got great wetlands along the side of it and uh, there was uh, there is still a uh, an industrial park that um, they're going to build there in that watershed but uh, because our members raised their voices we were able to secure um, over 100 acres of pristine wetlands that are be placed in the conservation easement and it'll protect that stream side uh, super important filtering water body there um, and so the uh, the development will go on but that rabbit creek will continue pretty much as we know it it won't be muddied up and uh and will you know it'll still be a beautiful place to visit 
Um, the the saga of the coal ash continues, and uh, you know we we are awaiting some more news from the EPA, which is the Federal Environmental Protection Agency. But they've said that uh, they're going to take action at the coal ash pond up at Plant Berry, which sits along the side of the Mogo River and is leaking arsenic into the Mogo River. And I don't know about y'all, but uh, arsenic uh, sounds like something I don't really want in my waterways or my fish. Um, so the EPA is, is going to take some action there, they've said, and, and they also said that if our state uh, doesn't uh, stop issuing permits for things like this, that they're going to deny their permitting privileges. So we await that good news uh, when, when that starts to move next. And then we've also got an oyster gardening game. So we've grown about 30,000 oysters over the last year, and we've recently have harvested or are harvesting them, and then we're placing them on a restoration reef. So we're growing these oysters to maturity and then putting them out on reefs so that we can have those oyster reefs that uh, that hold fish and other sea life, but uh, also filter water and provide all kinds of benefits for our ecosystem. So we went up to a lot. Uh, those are three of the things I figure folks would be most interested in now. Yeah, for sure. I think that's something that uh, I know, I know, I can't get enough of uh, pretty little creeks and clean water and a uh, good good old Mobile Bay oysters. I'm a big fan of all that. Most of our listeners are. That's all all good news. Good good to hear good news from you guys. Glad to hear y'all been been busy making a positive change. Uh, I, I'll I'll let you go ahead too. I I like this podcast because I get to mix a little business and pleasure. I get to talk about the fishing reports with people. Uh, this is not a fishing report, but we do sneak in a little duck hunting in here. Most guys here, they do a little bit of duck hunting on the side. So uh, I'll I'll get you real quick. Give us the uh, Mobile Tensaw duck hunting report. Give us the uh, the report as we close out the old 2023-2024 season. Yeah, well, you know, the, the, the best thing to report is I had a great guide this morning. And, and anything <laughs> that I'm re- going to report to everybody will be something that he told me probably. But uh <laughs> Yeah, Nick and I got up early and went out there, and uh, there's a little bit less water than uh, than last time we were out there for sure, and I think down from even recently. Uh, but you know, we snuck up in a little hole and tried to get some wood ducks to come in on us. Uh, they they didn't want to decoy up, so we had to take the passing shots, which you know got lucky a couple times. Um, and but the big the big news, and I'm gonna have to snitch on my dog. She's right here next to me in the office. But uh, Lily, she's a year old Boykin spaniel, and man, I've worked my tail off training her to be the the perfect retriever. And so she was excited to be out in the woods today. It was her first hunt where she got any action. And Nick, you saw it. She ran up to those ducks and sniffed them and said, "No, nah, I don't. I don't believe I want a part of that." So we got some work to do on the retrieving front. Young dog, but man, she's she's sitting here asleep now. She's worn out. <laughs> she is. Well, yeah, I, I measured it when we got when we got done walking. It was about two and a half miles in and two and a half miles back. So we definitely uh, it was it was not my my prettiest hunt. Birds are kind of pressured down here. People been shooting them up all year, and uh, we we got on some birds, but but I I definitely that was. Not a not a good morning for decoying birds, and I was I was happy once you started shooting and, and started hitting some of them. That was kind of checking us out a little bit, buzzing that little hole. So you you made some good shots. It was good to uh, 
it was good to watch some good shooting, good to get out there, enjoy a cup of coffee, have some good conversation, and watch somebody who could actually shoot birds because I I cannot. But but I but I got to say, like the ideal combination would would be next time we'll we'll let you shoot them and we'll let Amos go get them. There you go. Amos is a regular contributor to the podcast. Huh? We'll let both of them hunt, and he can show Lily how it's done. He'll show her what to do. I he's like old that. expert. He knows exactly what to do once ducks hit the water, and he he'd be happy. He lives to show people what you do once ducks hit the water. So <laughs> no, it was a, it was. A, it was a good time, and yeah, the water was definitely, you know, like I was telling you, walking over the bridge, you know, it, it fluctuates so much down here on, on the bay. It's such a dynamic environment. Uh, you know, we, we couldn't navigate under that bridge that we walked over this time last year. You know, it's been almost a year to the day since we went, and uh, we sat there and we floated Globe Creek, did a little bit of jump shooting, and uh, it it actually, this segues, I think, well into our next talking point so we were uh you know talking about about flooded creeks and and jump shooting ducks and other things you could do on creeks and i think the uh conversation of limb lines come up and we were talking about running limb lines and trot lines and uh you just kind of asked me as we were floating down the creek and uh you were like you ever look at the fish consumption advisories for the area because i just got done talking about you know filling up you know totes full of catfish up there and uh you're like, you ever look at the fish consumption advisories? And I was like, well, no, I don't, I don't guess I have really. And, uh, and, and you were just like, oh, okay, well, that's, you know, that information is out there. And, <laughs> you, and I was like, well, dang it. I said, now I got to go. So I got home and I started looking it up and, you know, was, was, I'd say not surprised. It made sense, but I, I was a little, you know, just be frank, disappointed. Like we have some fish consumption advisories right here where I fish. And then it was definitely something that kind of changed the way that I consumed fish here. And, and I was I was glad to know because it was right before um, my wife ended up pregnant with my daughter. You know, so I, I really felt like I got lucky, you know, just randomly out there hunting with somebody who brought it up and made me look at it and decide, man, maybe I need to uh, maybe we need to slow our roll with with these fish fries, you know, while my wife is sitting here. Uh, pregnant with my daughter since you know we've we've got a mercury consumption advisory so uh I, I think that's something that is very relevant to our audience so tell tell me more about that what what can you tell me about the fish consumption advisories for the area yeah well you know the we our state tests all over um they they catch fish and it's a combination of different agencies together so you have uh, Department of Conservation and Natural Resources, they're collecting the fish. Um, you got the Department of Public Health, which are testing the fish, and then you have the Department of Environmental Management, which has a role in the decision of, of uh, issuing advisories um, and then letting the public know about where there's advisories. And so um, it's not uncommon for me to, to ask people, hey, have you ever looked at the advisories in your area? And, you know, to be honest with you, I didn't know about fish consumption advisories. When, when I was a kid, I grew up in Tuscaloosa. We fished the Black Warrior, in it, but I do remember my grandfather, you know, we, we wouldn't eat our catch on the Black Warrior often. When he, when he grew up, that river was particularly polluted, at least in his mind. And so he says, probably not a very good idea for us to eat whatever's in these fish. And I just thought that's how it was done. And I figure that's a lot of folks, most folks figure that's how it's done. As you Make your best judgment call. What's what's being put in the water nearby? You know, we go off the site and smell. Does it look nasty? But actually, our, our 
our state is doing this testing and they're reporting back to us. And so, you know, I, I can speak for the Mobile area. Um, al almost every water body down here in coastal Alabama has some sort of advisory on it. Now, they vary. You've got uh, water bodies like the Mobile River that have an advisory that says do not eat any fish from the Mobile River. That's a mercury advisory there. And so, you know, I, I've asked folks that a lot. That's, you know, a little party trick. I say, you ever heard the, the, the advisory on the Mobile River says don't eat any fish from the Mobile River? People are shocked. Then you have other areas like uh, we'll take Mifflin Lake, which is not far from where we were this morning. And there's a there's an advisory there for largemouth bass that says uh, limit yourself to two meals a month. Again, the contamination there is mercury. And so, you know, there, there's these different levels. Some say just the fish are safe to eat. But in general, especially here in coastal Alabama, where the whole state drains to us, there's some sort of advisory just cautioning you to limit the amount you eat or, or maybe don't eat any at all. One thing I want to say about that, um, from my perspective, like I asked you when we were hunting that day, I, I don't like to say, hey, you shouldn't be eating that fish because I think everybody's got to make their own choice, right? But if our state's doing the testing, we ought to know about it. And, and I think that's the next part of it, that, uh, that we're trying to do something about that, where more folks will know uh, if they're catching safe to eat or not. Yeah, that was that was definitely, you know, you did not jump on me say, oh, I, I wouldn't eat those fish. You don't need to eat those fish. You kind of encouraged me to do my own homework. And, and I did the homework. And I got to say, I, I like to think I'm a a, a fairly uh, literate, you know, Internet savvy person. Uh, but it, it it was finding the information was more than just a quick Google search. You know, it, it, it kind of kind of took a little bit to find that report and then once you had the report you had to kind of uh it's one of those documents where you had to to read the section on how to read the report how to find your area and uh it was frustrating it wasn't something you could just you know pull up a tab on your phone and 30 seconds later be like okay got it don't eat catfish i mean it, it took some digging and then i had to go do that I've, I've had to do that several times fishing throughout the state like fishing up on a right uh, Lake Martin, you know, and we actually, me and a and a buddy went up there and he was like, well, the good thing is I checked and Lake Martin doesn't have any fish consumption advisories. And uh, I was like, really? He said, yeah. He, he said, it's clean. I'm like, I just, I don't know. It seemed weird to me. So I started digging and the way that they had it laid out, if I hadn't known, uh, there was an advisory there for uh, El Cachi Creek. And, and that's where we were staying that weekend where we were mm -hmm. fishing was where El Cachi dumps into Lake Martin. So it's, I think it's great that we do the testing, but there's kind of something to me that's to be desired about how that's reported and how that's made available to the public. And we've talked some in the past with, with uh, Justin up there at the Coosa River Keepers. Y'all have been kind of working towards for a couple of years, trying to get that information made available. Am I right? Absolutely. Well, you know, you, you, if you want this information, you have two options. You can do what you did. And, and here I'll describe it to the listeners. Uh, all you have to do, you visit the Alabama Department of Public Health homepage. You click who we are and you click view all under the about us tab. You can either scroll down or you can click on the T's to take you down to the T's on the menu. But toxicology, scroll down some more. You click on fish consumption advisories. Under the resources section there, you click on 2023 fish consumption advisory guidelines. That'll take you to 38 page PDF with all the advisories listed. You just got to find your water body and figure out uh, in their table what's going on. So you can do that or 
got a couple more options, and this is from the Waterkeepers Alabama. You can visit the alshoreact.com. So that's A-L-S-H-O-R-A-C-T.com. And we have a map right there, and you can scroll right into your water body and click on the fish. It's color-coded, and they'll tell you right there. I'm, I just pulled up Elkahatchee Creek on Tallapoosa County, and the advisor says, do not eat any fish from that water body. Contamination is mercury. Um, if you're out in on the water, though, and you want to uh, make a call to figure it out, maybe you don't have good internet, but you can make a call. You call 844-219-7475, and somebody will pick up, and they'll tell you what's going on, where you are. And if you uh, you don't speak English and you need it in Spanish, there's a Spanish option on that hotline as well. Yeah, that's that's definitely – the hotline would be easier, uh, especially I, – I do a, little, a lot of traveling and trying to, trying to sort through that document. You're not kidding when you say it's 38 pages and it's uh, – you know, just just for my area, too, the thing is, you know, like there's it's not like there's just a general advisory for the Mobile Tensile Delta where I fish. I mean, I think there's eight or nine different advisories for different places, right? It varies. Like you mentioned, there's one advisory for Mifflin and a whole another advisory if you go five miles over and you're on the Mobile River. Um, That's right. So, so, so you'll have multiple, most anglers will have multiple advisories, even if they're just fishing one body of water, you could be fishing one lake and you could have different levels of contamination in, in different parts of the lake or different parts of the river system. And, and we'll, we'll, I'm sure you can tell me more about how, how that happens, but you mentioned the shore act back, back up. I'm a little familiar with it. I've kind of kept, kept my finger on the shore act, but for our listeners, uh, can you give us just kind of a broad level view of what that is? Absolutely. Uh, so the Shore Act is a piece of legislation that we we worked on last year. We didn't quite get it passed. It's not quite law, so we're giving it a go this year. And essentially, what it's going to do is make it a law that we make it easier for anglers to know if their catch is safe to eat. And so I, I described, I hope people enjoyed my comedy routine with the describing how you go, you pull up a 38-page PDF. Um, but what's even easier than our hotline is uh, this law would require signs at every boat ramp, public boat ramp in the state, that have a picture of the fish and the listed advisory next to it. So there's no guesswork. You're launching your boat. And you can look on there and see a largemouth bass and how often you should eat it or if you should eat it at all. Um, that's the that's the main part of it. It'll also give you access to this information on your uh, fishing license, and it will create a legislative uh, task force. So there'll be people in charge of overseeing the program and making improvements along the way. So that's the bill we're pushing this year, and uh, and want to go ahead and thank uh, Representative Lipscomb for sponsoring this bill in the House, and then uh, Senator Sessions. Uh, for sponsoring it in the Senate. And uh, we I think we have a real good shot of getting this passed this year. And you should be seeing these signs real soon. Yeah, the signs would definitely be an improvement. That would, that was as somebody who travels and fishes, that would make life much easier. And it, and it seems like a, a simple improvement, right? Like you said, we do the testing and, and we're, we're, you know, kind of, kind of poking a little bit of fun at the system right here. Cause it is, I would encourage anybody listening in, take a second. And, and find your local fish consumption advisory. And, uh, you know, you, you, you may not need an undergraduate degree to do it, but you probably need a two-year certificate to figure out how to navigate the website. Uh, 
there's definitely a, a learning curve to it. And even now that I check it fairly regular, I kind of have to refresh my memory each time. So it would it would be nice to simplify that process. I think that's a uh, I think that's great news. Again, you know, it's not not telling people what to do, right? Like I I don't like to be told what to do. Most of the people I fish with, not exactly the crowd that likes to be told what to do, but I like to be able to make up my mind, you know, if, if I go to one area and uh, see that there's a fish consumption advisor, I'll, I'll still fish there, but it uh, probably not keeping fish, probably not going to clean fish if I can't eat but uh, one, two meals a month. And, and something, too, for listeners listen in, listening in, they do have in that 38-page PDF, they talk about what a serving size is, and I'm telling on myself here, but... Whatever it is, six ounces or whatever, I eat a lot more than that in one serving. So me, if I eat one meal of fish, even if it says you can have two, about halfway through my first round, uh, first po' boy that I make, I've I've exceeded my monthly limit for some of the areas that I fish. So, uh, and and I know something that comes up. I've talked with a few anglers about this, and uh, I've I've talked with some guys who aren't really concerned because they're like, well. Most of the fish consumption advisories are, are for black bass, and I don't eat bass. And and I'm not, you know, I eat fish. I eat crappie. I eat catfish. I don't eat a lot of bass. It, and your experience talking with people, is is that something where, you know, folks are right, and it's like, well, yeah, well nobody eats fish, or, or are people actually eating fish in your experience? Yeah, so, uh, you know, in my experience, people are eating fish. And by the way, I'm eating fish. And uh, it's important that I know this advisor information is I love it. Uh, most of my diet comes from things that I've caught or killed or somebody else that I know has caught or killed. And so uh, being able to know what's going into that is important to me and my family so I can make informed decisions. Um, however, we have done a survey to, uh, and of, there's about 450 anglers surveyed. And of them, it was over 90% say that they regularly eat fish. Now, I think I, I know you've recently gotten to fly fishing, and so maybe maybe our fly anglers aren't out there keeping and eating a bunch of their fish. But about ninety percent of anglers interviewed for this said that they're regularly eating fish from our waterways. So I'm encouraged by that because it shows folks are are participating with our resource. You know, the, the issue about black bass, there are advisories for other fish here on our advisory list. And so whether, if, you know, if you're not eating largemouth bass, although you'd be surprised at the folks that do, there is other information out there for you. And then over time, it would be great to improve this program where we could have more testing to know what's going into our catfish or crappie, speckled trout, things like that. Um, again, we've got some of that data, but improving it's always good. Yeah, I've... Uh... That was something, you know, is, is somebody who, you know, did back in college, did a little bit of, uh, you know, learning about how reports are made and, and digging into the data a little bit. Like I, I wanted to learn more. So you see a, you see a fish consumption advisory and you say, okay, well, there's a black bass advisory, you know, do not eat. And you go, well, what about crappie? And there's no information anywhere on the report. So you're like, well, all, I think all of our listeners, uh, who who tune in each week know that you talk to any guide on any of anybody of water and they'll tell you like what a bass eat shad or what a crappie eat shad so if mm-hmm. if if they're living in the same waters and they have the same diet uh it, it would seem to me that that would at least warrant more testing than what i've i've heard 
that they currently do. My understanding is that that as it stands, a lot of times crappie just don't get tested. I think I think the rationale is that they're a slower growing species with a with a slower metabolism. It, but it makes me wonder, like if there's a do not eat advisory for black bass, how many crappie can I eat? You know, can I eat one serving, two servings, five servings? That's that's information that as yeah. it stands now, we don't know. Is, is there any changes in the Shore Act that would kind of impact how they did testing, or is it just limited to publishing the testing results? Yeah. So this, so the the meat of this bill is about public notification, public education. So it's not going to address the testing itself, although it it leaves the ability to with um, a task force that's assigned for oversight. Um, but you know, I want to remind listeners. I'm sure everybody knows this, but. It's often good to be reminded that, uh, you know, our government, that they don't work for somebody else. They work for you. And so if you decide that you want crappie tested more often, then that's something that they ought to do. Um, so that, again, this creates an opportunity where now it's law and there's oversight and we can have the ability to improve that program uh, by the will of the people. Now, you're talking about why testing black bass instead of crappie. And I think it's a good opportunity to talk a little bit about uh, how these contaminants get into these fish. And so if you don't mind, I'll head down that road a little bit because, you know, I'm sure everybody doesn't know um, how this works. And, and uh, you know, if a bass is eating a shad and a crappie is eating a shad, shouldn't they have the same contaminants? And I've had to have some education recently to learn more about that myself. First of all, you know, pollutants get into our waterways uh, through a number of different ways. We have, um, you know, when it rains, things run off from our roads, uh, from things that are on the ground. We got agricultural practices run off from that. Um, but and there's other source, various sources of pollution. But also, um, we, there's uh, we permit the ability for people to have an outfall that goes into a waterway. And so that permit allows you to put a certain amount of contaminants into the water. Sometimes folks go over that limit. That's a non-compliance, and there's a penalty to that. And sometimes folks stay under that limit. Uh, but either way, uh, if it's legal or, or they're going over their limit, uh, we are putting contaminants into our waterway. Now, that at its face, I'm sure sounds bad to a lot of folks. Um, and, and, you know, there's an argument to be made for that. However, well, there's not going to be an advisories for, at least down our way, shrimp and crabs or some of these smaller bait fish, uh, minnows and things like that in our freshwater systems. And that's because of a, a, a process called biomagnification, which is a fancy way of saying the predatory fish have more pollutants in them because they're eating more fish. And so a black bass is more predatory than a crappie, although crappie is predatory for sure. So a black bass is going to have more contaminants than a crappie will. Now, again, we're speculating, so I don't have the data on a crappie in front of me to know what that difference should be. So the logic of a, they have a similar diet, therefore they, they have similar contaminants, uh, is, uh, that sounds sound to me. Um, but I just want folks to know that it's these predatory fish that are the ones having the issue. And the ones that those uh, smaller species usually don't have as many contaminants in. For sure, and I would I would say anybody listening in, uh, you know, the the species that you see listed the most are going to be catfish. Again, like Will said, a highly highly predatory fish. 
black bass, you know, largemouth bass, but that could also be, you know, Alabama bass. That could be uh, probably not so much your red-eye bass. Matt would Matt's probably happy about that, that at least we don't have to worry about that. But striped bass, Y'all too. Y'all going to be eating red-eye that's... bass anyway now. <laughs> I, I can't remember who I was talking to. It may have been Matt. I was poking fun of him, saying I was going to keep one and eat him just for science. <laughs> <laughs> But and I guess that kind of carries over like your your insectivores, your you know bluegill, your panfish that aren't crappie. Um, mm-hmm. They they don't seem to be impacted by that. So what what is it exactly that's getting in the waterway that ends up in fish tissue and makes them test positive when they go to test for contaminants? Yeah, there, there's a, there's a few contaminants that they do test for. I won't list all of them, uh, but but before I get started, I'll just say there's a long list of contaminants that could be in your fish. These are things that we aren't testing for, things that we know were in the water, and then there's also things that we don't know are in the water that we're certainly not testing for because we don't even know that they're being put in there. There's I didn't want to get started with that, but uh, the three main things that we see here in our state that there are have advisories on. First is mercury, and uh, and nearly all fish and shellfish have some trace of mercury, no matter what body of water they come from. Reason for that, number one, is that it's now in our atmosphere. It's in our rainwater. So when you burn certain fossil fuels, coal, things like that, mercury gets in the atmosphere and it comes down um, and it gets in all of our water and very difficult to get out. So it's not necessarily coming from uh something that happens in Birmingham it could be something happening halfway across the world um so that you know that's a human input but it affects all of us here but of course we do our fair share of putting mercury into our waterways here in our state um and then there's a just a naturally occurring mercury in the geology as well although that's a, a smaller percentage of what we see I do think it's fair that people know that mercury exists in our geology it comes into our waterways natural processes. Um, the second is, is PCBs, and I'm not going to tell you the whole name of PCBs. You can look it up if you want, um, but they cause a lot of health impacts over long exposures. They can be acutely toxic if you have them at high levels. Uh, health impacts from PCBs are a probable carcinogen, hormone disruptor, can impact the immune system, thyroid. They can cause in, impacts to fertility and child development. And I didn't list those for mercury, but it's not it's not entirely different from mercury. Uh, with mercury, you're dealing more with the unborn or a young child's development, developing nervous system. Um, the third thing that we see in our uh, in our advisories is arsenic. And I mentioned uh, the coal ash pond earlier. Again, that's just one source. I'm not trying to pin it all on one source, but um, arsenic does come from coal and, and other uh, things like that. And again, it's a heavy metal. Um, that are cause risk for developing children, fetuses, those who are pregnant, you mentioned your wife, nursing, uh, may want to have children in the future. So those, as usual, those that are most at risk are the ones that should pay the most attention uh, to these advisories. For sure. And and I think kind of looping back into what we were saying earlier, like learning that and being more educated in it, like you, you learn a lot about uh, – I learned a lot about fetus development that I did not know or care to know before um, <laughs> my wife was pregnant. You just kind of pick up on it whether you want to or not going and doing your doctor checkups. But, uh, you know, we, we looked at that information and I had a freezer full of catfish and she hasn't touched the stuff since. She just decided that in her mind, the 
the risk was not worth it and she hasn't eaten locally caught catfish since i kept i think about two bags for my personal use and then then the rest we kind of gave to people just told them hey look like it's it, it's fresh wild river caught catfish but we're kind of cleaning out the freezer like this this is why do you want it some people were like yeah not really and other people were like oh yeah sure been eating it for years and not going to turn it down you know so I think I, I would definitely encourage people to You give me a call next time you're doing a freezer clean out now, <laughs> all right? Don't get me when you're passing out fillets. Oh, man. We had, I, well, I tell you what, now I don't, we had to get rid of all the wild game to, to make room of all, for everything that comes with a baby. Like, the, all my hunting gear, like, I, that's really what you wanted to get in on was not so much the wild game. What you wanted to get in on was when I was, giving away decoys and old hunting jackets and all that, trying to make room for the baby strollers that were going in my closet. (laughs) So, Well, that's definitely an info dump. And I know that that may be kind of, you know, for some of our readers, more dense listening, listening to fish consumption advisories and talking about 38 page PDFs and talking about legislative acts and stuff like that. That's not exactly um, as riveting as listening to people who are going out there and catching big bass. But I think it's important as we go into the new year, you know, last week we talked a lot about what you can do to kind of get ready for the season, organizing your tack, tackle, working on your boats, wiring, you know, kind of, kind of getting ready. And I would encourage people take a second and familiarize yourself with the information that, that Will kind of gave an overview of. It's, it's interesting. Um, it impacts you. It's something where you can, you know, spend an hour or two reading up on it, and then that's information that you've got for every fishing season to come. I am glad that I took the time. I'm glad Will pointed it out that day when we were hunting. I'm glad that I did the research on it. And just kind of in closing, Will, if people want to learn more, tell us tell us again where they can go to kind of do that research for themselves. Yeah, well, as always, you can visit uh, Baykeeper's website, mobilebaykeeper.org, for, for this information and lots more. But, uh, again, if you want to follow or even help out to this particular piece of legislation, it's alshoreact.com. So A-L-S-H-O-R-A-C-T.com. There we go. Guys, y'all go check that out. Uh, William, just want to take a second. Thank you for all that y'all do. And uh, at some point, we'll have to go now. I, I haven't been out that way on Dog River in a little bit, but at some point, we need to make a play date and we'll go uh, fish that little stretch of Rabbit Creek, see if we can't get on some chain pickerel back in there or something. Yeah, it, it's clear enough. And, and you know, I appreciate you having me on to talk about this and other water quality issues. Now, if you want to have me on to tell folks how to not catch fish, that'll save them some time. I tell them what I do. And then they'll go, I'll make sure to not do that so I can go out there and catch some fish. So talk, <laughs> if you want to talk fish, and we can do that too. <laughs> well, there we go, Will. I appreciate you being on the show. And uh, give give Lily a, a biscuit for me tonight and tell her that I don't have any hard feelings. We'll uh, we'll get her out there next year, and we'll get her on some more birds, see if we can awaken that killer instinct in her. That's right. Well, you know, next season starts tomorrow, so we're gonna, we'll get her going. There we go. That's it. That's a good attitude. Will, I appreciate you being on the show. Y'all take care. Thanks for having me. This week's episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report was brought to you by Fish Bites. Whether you're hitting the sand with set rigs, using traditional scent strips for pompano, or fishing the flats and marshes for speckled trout, redfish, and flounder, Fish Bites has something for you. Family-owned and operated in St. Augustine, Florida, They pride themselves on making reliably consistent fishing products for anglers of all ages all around the world. Fish Bites baits and lures are made with pride in the Sunshine State here in USA. 
Check out the full line of scented saltwater and freshwater baits at fishbites.com. Well, folks, that wraps up this week's Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. If you'd like for us to email you the podcast, just text FISHING to 314-665-1767. Again, just text the word FISHING to 314-665-1767. Subscribe to our email list and we'll send you the new show each week. This week's episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report has been brought to you by Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks manufacture a variety of metal roofing systems to meet your needs. Whether you're putting a new roof on your home or sheeting a commercial building, they have you covered. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks, your metal roofing headquarters. Also brought to you by Mallard Bay. Book your next guided hunting or fishing trip with thoroughly vetted guides or charters. Plan trips, buy gear, go experience. Mallardbay.com also brought to you by Hilton's Real-Time Navigator, bringing you the highest quality online satellite fishing charts since 2004. Your source for sea temps, allometry, currents, and watercolor at hiltonsoffshore.com. Also by BucksIsland.com. Bucks Island has been in business since 1948 for all of your new and used boat needs, as well as motor sales and service. And now they have a pro-level tackle store. Boat and motor trade-ins are welcome. Visit them online at BucksIsland.com or give them a call at 256-442-2588. Also by the East Tennessee Fishing Show and Expo is back. January 25th through the 28th at the Knoxville Expo Center on Clinton Highway. Come check out all things fishing. Buy your tickets now at EastTennesseeFishingShow.com. Proudly sponsored by Monster Marine.